What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Episode 16. Thank you so much for listening. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And uh, today I thought I would do something a little bit differently. Instead of just having one or two topics, I have a variety, a potpourri of things to talk about on the podcast today, including the casting couch in Hollywood, rewriting Neil Simon, going to Hollywood screenings, things not to do at show parties, and my most memorable home run call. And I'm going to be able to tell whether or not you listen to the whole program because I guarantee you that most of the mail and response I get is going to be as a result of that home run call. Uh, Let's just say that people are still talking about it. So a lot to talk about today. Again, thanks for being here. Let's get it going. Hollywood and Levine. One would have to be incredibly naive to believe that the casting couch does not exist in Hollywood, or more accurately, East Hollywood. The truth is, yeah, it does exist, but those tend to be non-union situations. As a producer and a director, I have to tell you, I've been involved in many casting sessions for pilots and TV series, and in every one, there's a casting director, a committee of producers, the director, sometimes network and studio executives, and within that group, there is almost always one woman, sometimes more. The actor also has agents and managers. They're also in unions. Everything is handled on a very professional basis. Actresses can take comfort in knowing that they were rejected not because they refused to give sex, but because they were too tall, too short, too ethnic, too pretty, not pretty enough, too old, too skinny, not diverse enough, too pale, too dark, not funny, not likable, not relatable. And young actresses, if a TV producer propositions you on the side and says, I can get you in my NBC show, here's a newsflash. He can't. All network casting has to be approved by the network. And it has gotten so ridiculous with the networks these days that even those one- and two-line parts now have to be approved by the network. I mean, it used to be I was able to get my dad in. He was always the maitre d', and I'd give him a line or two, and no one really cared, and he, of course, was great. But now you have to bring them like two or three people doing these two-line parts And they make the decision. So the best you're going to do if you're going to sleep with a producer is to become an extra 
And won't you feel stupid when the extra right next to you uh, got there by bidding $25 at her school's silent auction? So projects that do resort to the casting couch are probably not projects that you want to be in anyway. Trust me, you do not have to compromise yourself to get into the business. And chances are, if you do, you still won't get in. Or even if you do, you're going to hate yourself. But how do you really know going in if it is a casting couch situation? Very good question. Rarely is must sleep with me on the breakdown sheets. So here are the warning signs. Yes, they are facetious, but they are also true. So you may find yourself in a casting couch situation when the casting session is held in an apartment in Pacoima, when there's no script, when the producer's first question is, will you sign this document verifying that you're 18? When the project is the Mother Teresa story and you're told nudity is involved. When you Google the producer and it takes you to smokinggun.com. When he'd prefer not dealing with your agent because he's an artist, not a businessman. When he looks like Fredo from The Godfather or Bob from Becker or Steve Buscemi from anything. When there's no one else in the room. When you learned about the casting session from a handwritten note on the bulletin board at Safeway. When there are bars on the windows of his office. When he has seven video cameras in his office and one is built into the floor. When he wears an ankle monitor. When you're the only one there to audition. When the script is Chinatown by Robert Taungager. When it's a student film, but the director is 60. When you feel the least bit suspicious for any reason. Now listen, I hope you never find yourself in one of these situations. Best of luck, and I look forward to seeing you one day in a real casting session where you have a drive on to the lot and everything. Coming back with more right after this. When you're on staff of a TV show, oftentimes you get your meals brought in because you just don't have the time to go out and eat. So you get your lunch and you get your dinner brought in. Usually it's on styrofoam and the spaghetti is all congealed and you get those same menus and you're going through the same five places. And so when I was a showrunner, I, along with uh, my partner, decided, well, why don't we like just hire some catering company and they can come in every day and just give us something new and different that's hot. And that was great for like the first two weeks. And then we started noticing the same dishes basically reappearing with different sauce. We used to call it chicken with hats. Anyway, we blew that off in a couple of weeks and had to go back to the menu. And the problem is... There's no variety. That is why Blue Apron is such a godsend. Now, you know about Blue Apron, right? It is this service where you order the ingredients and they come to your house fresh. And within an hour, you cook up a healthy, delicious meal. And the variety part, the same recipe does not appear twice within any calendar year. No chicken with hats. It's a great deal. It's called Blue Apron. Like I said, you make it in less than an hour. It costs less than $10 a meal. And 
As a special introductory offer to my podcast listeners, I want you to try three free meals and get free shipping. All you got to do is just go to blueapron.com and then type in slash Hollywood. You will love how good you feel. You will love how good it tastes. And you will actually going to feel really good about cooking up all this stuff that you never believed that you could actually do. It is blueapron.com slash Hollywood. Okay, this is the time that I rewrote Neil Simon. (laughs) You talk about chutzpah. Well, I first should say that Neil Simon is my idol. He is a comedy god. I devoured his plays when I was growing up. In fact, I have praised Neil Simon so often in my blog that when Turner Classic Movies decided to have a Neil Simon film festival, they enlisted me to host it. So I am a huge Neil Simon fan. And Neil Simon, as you know, is notorious for going around and making sure that nobody changes a word of his plays. If you have a Neil Simon play that is in some community theater somewhere, some high school production somewhere, he has these spies that go and watch them and make sure that you don't mess around with the text. So he is very, very strict about that. We go back to when my daughter Annie was in high school and wanted to join the Brentwood Theater Company at Brentwood High, and she had to audition. She had to do a monologue that could be no longer than three minutes. Well, the monologue that she chose was a beautiful, long speech from Plaza Suite, the Neil Simon play. So she rehearsed it and did it, and I timed it, and it was 3.40. And so I said, oh, okay, let's see if I can thin this puppy down. And I went through it, and sure enough, there were a couple of sentences that were a little repetitious. There were uh, expressions where he used four words that you could just use one. Anyway, I made some trims and cut some things out and gave it back to her, and she tried it again, and sure enough, it was 2.45, and nobody was able to tell the difference. By the way, I should mention that uh, she auditioned and she did get into the Brentwood Theater Company. Thank you very much. And I say this, obviously, opening myself up to be sued by Neil Simon, but I say this for a reason. And the reason is this, that screenwriters, if they are being honest, will all tell you that there are always trims that you can make in long speeches. You don't think so at the time. You think every word is golden. You think Rosetta Stone. But again, you can make trims. It's very difficult to write long speeches. And usually the best way to do it, especially now with computers, is to just let it flow, to just write and write and write and put down different thoughts, and you can always go back, you can always cut things out, you can always move sections around. But when you think you have the speech down to a nice, tidy 340, you know what? You can go back and you can take out another 20, 30 seconds. 
when my partner David Isaacs and I write a script, we'll do the draft, then we'll do a second draft, and just before we turn it in, we go through the script one final time, and we do two things. We try to add five more great jokes, and the second thing is anytime there is a long speech, we find a way to trim it down. And we have never in our entire year career had a long speech that we felt, no, you can't change a single word. There's always trims. So hopefully uh, next week I won't be doing this podcast from jail, but it is a point to all writers that you can thin down your speeches. And uh, Neil, I'm really sorry, but hey, if you do get in touch with me, I still have my revised version. It's actually pretty good. You, sh- you should check it out. Hollywood and Levine. There are many reasons why you shouldn't get drunk at parties, and this is one of them. We go back to the first season of Cheers. It's 1982, and Ted Danson throws a Christmas party for everybody. At the time, Ted lived in a very modest house in the San Fernando Valley. It was really fun. Everybody was there. It was very low-key, and the uh, eggnog was flowing, as it were, and I had my share. Remember, prior to Cheers, Ted had been in the movie Body Heat, and one of the features of the character that Ted played, he was like a DA, assistant DA, something like that, was that he was the tap dancing DA. And he was very light on his feet, and he did all of this tap dancing, and it was a great little character quirk. But at that party that night, I walked into the kitchen, and Ted was there with a couple of other people, including the dance instructor for that movie. Ted said to me, hey, how would you like to learn how to dance like Fred Astaire? Again, I'm a little... (laughs) And so I said, sure, I'd love to be able to dance like Fred Astaire. By the way, I should mention, I'm a terrible dancer. I have absolutely no rhythm. I look like a spastic printing press when I get out on the dance floor. But I figure, okay, sure, I'll learn how to dance like Fred Astaire. And that was the last I heard of it. Now a couple of weeks go by, I'm in a Cheers rewrite, and there's a phone call into the writer's room. Glenn Charles, one of the Charles brothers and the showrunners of Cheers, uh, picks up the phone, and it's Ted. Ted, he says, yeah, uh, tell Ken it's time to come down for a dance lesson. Glenn Charles was like, what? He turned to me and said, I just got the strangest phone call. Teddy said, it's time for you to go down for a dance lesson. And I said, dance? Oh, Christ, Christmas party. Um, Yeah, I kind of committed to taking dance lessons. Now, I should point out that when you are in a comedy writer's room and you do something really, really stupid, like sign up for dance lessons... You are going to be the target of jokes for weeks, perhaps months. Well, I left myself open to it, and I figured, I, you know, I'll just take this one. I, I can't really just blow off Ted, so, you know, I'll be gone for an hour. So I go down, and a rehearsal hall had been set up in one of the studios, 
It was me, Teddy, Rhea Perlman, and seven secretaries and 15 gay guys who worked on the lot. And we were all learning how to dance. And we were in like three lines and, you know, they're showing us moves and all. And uh, everyone's moving left and I'm moving right. Like I said, I just, I have no rhythm whatsoever. Meanwhile, in the corner, there is somebody with a camera. And I'm figuring, God, what's that for? My first thought was, well, I know that Paramount had a newsletter that came out once a month. So I figure, oh, God, this is going to really be embarrassing that I will be in the Paramount newsletter dancing. Well, it turns out that it was not for the Paramount newsletter. It was for TV Guide. And sure enough, about three weeks later, there was an article about Ted and Rhea taking dance lessons. And there's this nice shot of everybody moving left while I move right. And again, I did not hear the end of it in the writing room for the entire season. That was my one and only dance lesson. And so the lesson I got from this is don't drink and dance. Hollywood and the fine. Going to Hollywood advanced screenings can be really cool or really awful. Now, on the one hand, of course, it's very exciting being invited to a studio screening. Kind of makes you feel like you're really in the biz, you know? Uh, you may not be on the A-list, but at least you're on some list. And in Hollywood, that's really all that matters. You know, for me and my partner, David Isaacs, there was a very brief, very brief, couple of nanoseconds uh, period where we were writing and selling features and we were actually on several of these studio screening lists. I mean, I would get a letter with the invite and instructions to call Mr. Steven Spielberg's office to RSVP. Very cool. Of course, when I called, I was automatically connected to voicemail. And then when I arrived at the theater, half the time there was a screw up and I wasn't on the list. But uh, I prepared for that. Uh, Number one, I always brought the invite with me, and if that didn't work, I always kept my Emmy in the trunk of the car. Anyway, once inside, here's what the experience is like. Well, you do feel special and exclusive, as special and exclusive as one of 2,500 people can actually be, but usually there are some celebrities that are sprinkled in. I once uh, sat in a row, like, two seats away from Nicole Kidman. And this is when she still looked like Nicole Kidman. She was amazing at the time. Well, generally, too, you get free popcorn. Agents are there, and they'll schmooze, and some will even say hello to you, including those that represent you from time to time. Uh, And if you know somebody who's involved in the film, that's pretty cool, too. Usually I'm kind of envious because I didn't get too many films made. Uh, Then you take your seat, and then there's that air of excitement. The lights go off, the movie starts, the print is pristine, the sound is glorious, and you just know that you're in for a thrilling night of cinemagic. And sometimes you are, but most times you're not. 
And that is the downside. I mean, sure, when you go to a screening of Why Him, you have a pretty good idea that you're not going to be blown away. But I have to tell you, there have been numerous times when highly anticipated big-budget summer tentpole potential blockbusters just laid resounding and foul eggs, and then you are trapped in hell because it's very hard to slip out without being noticed. So most of the time, you just have to suck it up sit through the entire movie, which is always 45 minutes too long, and then you have to sit through all of the end credits, every single one of them. That's about another 15 minutes. And then you file out. And once you get into the lobby, now you have a receiving line because you have the filmmakers there, and you're supposed to walk by and greet them and tell them how great their movie was which is fine if the movie was great, but in a lot of cases, uh, the movies were not. And the only thing worse than being on one of those lines, I have to say, is being one of those filmmakers as the people came by. And this happened when David and I wrote the movie Volunteers, which was actually very well-reviewed. We had a big cast and crew screening at the uh, Motion Picture Academy Theater, and I was standing in that receiving line next to Walter Parks, who was one of the producers of the movie. And a woman came up to him and grabbed both of his hands and said, Oh, Walter, we love you anyway. (laughs) So that's what it's like. Uh, You know, you have those forced compliments. I mean, what do you say to the producer of Captain Underpants. I mean, wow, fantastic. Citizen Kane, it's the next great thing. Now, an actress I know did a movie, and she said when she went to the cast and crew screening, it was so unspeakably bad that when the lights came up, the entire cast was crying. (laughs) Well, I haven't gone to many screenings, uh, in the last few years, and every so often now, I'll be like channel surfing, it'll be like 2 o'clock in the morning, and um, and I'll see, oh my God, that's one of the movies that I saw a screening of, and it's now on like channel 752, one of those channels that's just so bad that they can't even scare up an infomercial to play in the middle of the night, and the print is bad, the sound is all muddy, you know, and I just think back to the night that I originally saw it, the excitement, the promise. This was going to be the hit of the year. This was going to be an Oscar contender. And now animated promos for Silver Spoons, which rerun at 6 o'clock every morning, are taking up 20% of the screen. <laughs> they don't call it the Dream Factory for nothing. Like I said, I haven't been to one of these uh, big studio screenings in quite some time, and I imagine they've changed a little bit. I I bet people are now texting each other throughout the movie. They didn't used to do that. Um, Probably the post-parties are nowhere near as grandiose. Probably have to pay for the popcorn now. 
You know, the fancy invites have been replaced by form emails. Uh, Fewer celebrities attend. Getting through all the paparazzi is a hassle. Uh, The red carpets have been rolled up. Traffic is really bad, especially in Westwood. So I figure more agents and publicists are skipping them. You know, it's probably nowhere near as fun or as glamorous as it used to be just a few short years ago. So I guess what I'm saying is, can I get back on one of those lists? Whenever people find out that I've been a baseball announcer, invariably they will ask, well, what's your home run call? Well, I don't really have a signature home run call, but I do have a very memorable home run call that I used once and once only back in 1988. It was my first year broadcasting baseball, and along with Dan Horde, who is now the voice of the Cincinnati Bengals and the Cincinnati Bearcats, uh, I was calling games for the Syracuse Chiefs in the International League. Unfortunately, we were on a terrible radio station. I don't even remember the call letters, but we were like at 1590 on the dial, class 4, 250 watts. And at night, when we would go to our nighttime pattern, our coverage area was so bad that if you were sitting in the stadium and you were in the grandstands on the third base side, uh, we were gone. Uh, Okay, so after 8.15, I would have to say, good night to everybody who is listening to the station down the third base line. We'd go to uh, nighttime power, and they were gone. And people, of course, would complain about how terrible the the signal was. And to try to save face, I said that, uh, well, we're really just the flagship station of the worldwide Syracuse Chiefs radio network, that there are stations all over the world that listen to and pick up the Syracuse Chiefs radio network. I said in the Imperial Palace in Bhutan, we're huge. They love us in Norway. They love us in Greenland. Uh, We are just a worldwide sensation. Unfortunately, here in Syracuse, it's very difficult to hear. And uh, I decided to start doing this on the air for fun. What the heck? I would pause for station identification on the worldwide Syracuse Chiefs radio network. Now, the irony, of course, is today with the Internet, it pretty much is the worldwide Syracuse Chiefs radio network because you can find it online and you can be in the Imperial Palace of Bhutan listening to Syracuse Chiefs baseball. I don't know why you would want to, but you could. So anyway, um, I would do this night after night, and we had a player, he's a real sweet kid named Norm Tanucci. He was our third baseman, and uh, like I said, great kid, really a slick fielder, but he was struggling at the plate. He was going over for June. And every night it was just strikeout, 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 ground out, strikeout. And it was really tough. And you hated the fact that every time he came to the plate, what are you going to say about this guy? So, you know, you'd have to go, well, he's uh, one for 37, uh, batting 011 for the month of July. You know, it was really tough. So I decided instead of that to create this whole scenario whereby Norm Tanucci was a folk hero in Borneo. 
And I made up this whole story on the air about how his father had parachuted in behind enemy lines during World War II and saved the country. And as a result of that, 98% of the male babies born are named Norm and 93% of the female babies born in Borneo are named Norm. And the uh, currency is in Tanucha's. And uh, I would talk about what a great folk hero Norm Tanucci was. And he went along with this. Uh, he was a real good sport. In fact, I even recorded him a couple of times saying, uh, hi to everybody in Borneo. Uh, this is Norm Tanucci. Thanks so much for listening, etc." So I was able to talk about that instead of the fact that he had struck out eight times in the last nine at-bats. So we are now in Oklahoma City, And we had flown all day, and everybody was really kind of punchy and had no sleep. And when that happens, you either are shut out or you win 18 to nothing. So this night, we were doing pretty well. And Norm Tanucci got up, and I wasn't broadcasting this inning. My partner, Dan Horde, was. And Norm Tanucci got up and tripled. And so when he came up again, and I was broadcasting that inning... I mentioned how everybody in Borneo was very excited because their boy tripled. And then the first pitch, he just crushes. And I mean, he just hit a moonshot to left field. And my home run call was this. There's a high drive to deep left field. Steve Camp back to the track, to the wall. No school tomorrow in Borneo. Uh, That was my home run call. And uh, to this day, when I see executives from the Toronto Blue Jays, because we were the Blue Jays AAA affiliate, they still remember it. I'm still known for No School Tomorrow in Borneo. So that is my favorite home run call. Hollywood and Levine continues right after this. Got a question for you. Do you love wine? Of course you do. Anyway, I have got the perfect wine club for you. It's called Wink, and it is W-I-N-C. Wink is a revolutionary wine club that delivers high-quality wine straight to your door. Now, here's what they do. They partner with innovative winemakers from all over the world to produce a wide variety of small-lot, handcrafted wines for the members. With Wink, you have the freedom to pick and choose the type of wines and the number of bottles that you receive each month. And the best part is, they offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee on every single bottle. Start drinking personalized wine selections today. Try Wink and... I have a special introductory offer for you. You can get $22 off of your first order when you go to wink.com slash Hollywood. Again, that's W-I-N-C. And it gets even better. I know you all hate paying for shipping, so Wink will actually pay for your shipping on orders of four bottles or more. So uh, take something off of that to-do list. Come on, just go to your uh, computer... Type in wink.com slash Hollywood and get $22 off your very first order right now. So I wonder how many people are listening to this podcast in Borneo. Anyway, that is going to do it for episode 16. So did you like the uh, new format? 
Did you like me telling different stories as opposed to one or two topics? Anyway, let me know. Thanks very much to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, and Randy Thomas. Yes, it takes a village. If you have not subscribed yet to this podcast, I sure would appreciate if you do that. Also, if you would give me a five-star review, that would be very helpful as well. Once again, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.